thy word read, and as we have the opportunity to ponder uh, today the, the life, the ministry of Christ, we pray that you would uh, give us attention to thy word, uh, that we would be fed by it, even as Elijah was fed in the wilderness uh, by means of the ravens, that by means of the word, that we would be fed today. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So again, we're, we're looking at this in this short series on the doctrine of the incarnation. I noted last week it's a word that's, that doesn't appear in the Bible, but it, it conveys a concept that's in the Bible. And the concept is that uh, in Jesus, that the second person of the eternal Godhead became a man. As uh, John will put it in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Last time, last, last Sunday afternoon, we looked at some places in the Old Testament that anticipate the Incarnation. And there are places in the Old Testament, you might remember, that are described sometimes as theophanies. Sometimes it's described as an appearance of the angel of the Lord. And so I, I pointed you to three passages, Genesis 3, where God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. Exodus 3, where the angel of the Lord appeared in the burning bush and spoke uh, to Moses. And Daniel 3, where there was one like the Son of God who was there in the burning fiery furnace preserving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We noted that those were anticipations, a longing for a time when God would be on earth. Those, those were theophanies, physical manifestations of God, but there was a longing for a time when the word would indeed be made flesh. And we believe that that happened in the fullness of time, as Paul puts it in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time that that Christ was born uh, of a woman, born under the law, and that he came to redeem us from the curse of sin. And so orthodox or right thinking, right believing Christology, Christology is the word for the theology of Christ, holds that in the incarnation, the eternal second person of the Godhead, God the Son, became a man. He is one person with two natures. The Lord Jesus is one person with two natures, true God and true man. And so it's interesting when we think about it. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, we can't speak of Jesus before he was incarnate, before he was conceived in the womb. Before that time in eternity past, there was the second person of the Godhead, the Son. But then in a point of time, God, in the person of the Son, became a man. And that is the great uh, mystery and the wonder of salvation. Though it is uh, perhaps most common today for men to deny the true deity of Christ, uh, men are reluctant and, and even reject uh, confessing Jesus as Lord, uh, actually in the early uh, times, in the earliest days of ancient Christianity, the thing that was more controversial 
was his true humanity. And there were, there were many who would say, yes, I, I believe Jesus is God. But they would say, I don't think he was a true man, a real man. How could God be a man? And a lot of that, people who, who had come from Greek backgrounds, and they had been influenced by Greek philosophy, which stresses the immutability of God. They said, how could God grow? How could God <coughs> die on the cross? And so they would, they would affirm the deity of Jesus, but they would say he wasn't really a man. He only appeared to be a man. He only seemed to be a man. And one of the early uh, heresies that plagued early Christianity was called docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, to seem to be, to appear to be. But again, those right thinking and right believing Christians said, no, Jesus uh, is the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead, but he came as a real man, a true man. And in fact, it was necessary for him to be a true man, for him to accomplish his mission of saving sinners. And so uh, with that, I want to turn and we're going to just survey a little bit from the Gospels as they describe Jesus and as they describe him as a true man. And so the first thing that we can look at is the conception of the Lord Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We sometimes call this the virgin birth or the virginal conception of our Lord. And Christians have long held that this is an essential truth of the faith uh, which we must affirm that that Christ was was conceived in an extraordinary manner, that he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin, apart from a natural or ordinary relationship between a, a, a man and a woman, uh, an intimacy. And so we, we can look, and again, I'm going to be looking at a number of passages in the Bible. You can turn to these, you can choose just to listen, do as, do as, you're, as you feel comfortable to do. But in Matthew chapter 1, let's look at uh, verses 18 and following. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, uh, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And so this is the miraculous virginal conception, or sometimes called the virgin birth of Christ. And so that's taught in Matthew's gospel. And likewise, when we look over at the Gospel of Luke, of course, there are two books or two Gospels that record the conception and the birth of Jesus, Matthew and then Luke, whereas Mark begins his account of the life of Christ with the baptism of Jesus by John. John begins his Gospel with, we could say, prehistory. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew and Luke both record for us the conception and the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And so uh, if you look at Luke chapter 1 
and verse 35. This is when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. It says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And so Matthew and Luke both agree in saying that Jesus was conceived under extraordinary circumstances, miraculously, miraculous circumstances in the womb of Mary. And then uh, the Gospels also agree in telling us about the birth of Jesus, that he was born, that, that he uh, came into this world in, in the way that, that all of us came into this world, birthed uh, through uh, this natural experience of being in the womb, being born of his mother. So the Lord Jesus did not appear on the earth in the way that God created Adam, for example. In Genesis 2-7, God simply formed the dust and he breathed life into Adam. And Adam came as a full-grown man. But Christ came as, uh, again, uh, a, a, an infant, that he was there in the womb and then that he was born. And so, again, we, we can look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25. It says, and uh, speaking of Joseph, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. And then Matthew 2 verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, there came wise men from, from the east to Jerusalem. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then likewise, we're going to kind of uh, pigeon, uh, ping pong rather back and forth between Matthew and Luke. If you look at Luke 2, verses 4 through 7, it says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So Christ was miraculously conceived, virginal conception in the womb of Mary. Then he was born uh, in an ordinary manner. And then uh, the scriptures tell us that he grew, that when he came as an infant, he was not, uh, he, he did not come uh, as a kind of a demigod, but he came as a normal child in many ways. And he, and he, he grew physically. He learned things. He acquired skills. He learned uh, how to walk and how to talk, that he was an ordinary child. In many ways. And so uh, we can look, for example, at Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, a very striking passage where Luke records of Jesus' upbringing in Nazareth. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so, um, again, this is Jesus being a true man. Um, we can imagine the Lord Jesus, again, passing through all the stages of development. We can imagine the Lord Jesus being a toddler like Elizabeth back there uh, and, and, and walking about. We can imagine him as a five-year-old. Uh, we have one account of him 
in Luke's gospel also as being 12 years of age. We can imagine him progressing and being a young man. And one of the things that, that, again, that we learn from this is it's not sinful to grow. It's not. He did all of this without ever sinning, without ever doing anything in an ungodly way. It's not sinful to, to, to grow. It's not sinful to learn for a man to learn. Uh, and then as he enters into his manhood, we're told in Luke 3, verse 23, that when he was about 30 years of age, he began his public ministry. Uh, he was baptized by John. He was tempted in the wilderness. He went about preaching, teaching, and healing. He drew disciples to himself. And then as he exercised his ministry, the Gospels tell us some of the many ordinary things that he did as a man. And let me just summarize a few of these. Uh, one is that Jesus slept. He was not a robot that was sort of an energizer bunny uh, that just sort of was awake all the time or something like that. It's not sinful uh, to need rest and to need sleep. And one of the most famous uh, uh, descriptions of this comes at a time that's described in the first three Gospels in Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 4, Luke chapter 8, of the time when Christ was on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And the storm arose, and his disciples were frightened and didn't know what was going to happen. And they came uh, looking for Christ, but he was sleeping. And so if you look at Matthew chapter 8, uh, and verse 24, it says, And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples, verse 25, came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And so Christ slept. There were times when he would grow physically tired. It's not sinful to be tired. Human beings were, were made uh, to need rest and there was nothing sinful about that. Praise God for sleep, right? It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to enjoy. Um, Jesus, the Lord Jesus also had times when he hungered and he ate food. Uh, there are many descriptions of Christ during his ministry going into people's homes and sitting down at the table and, and eating with, with people. If, if we're in Matthew chapter 8, you can look right uh, across the page there at Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, which describes the conversion of the apostle Matthew. And it says there in, in Matthew 9, 10, and it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. But what was he doing? He was sitting at meat in the house. He was sitting down and sharing in a, a meal. And there are times when it tells us that, that Jesus was was hungry. So you can look, for example, in Mark chapter 11 and verse 12. And this is from a time when uh, Christ was in Jerusalem and when he uh, would go and, and, and curse the fig tree, the unfruitful fig tree. But it says in Mark 11 verse 12, and on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, experienced uh, as the God-man, as a man, he experienced hunger uh, with respect to his human nature. Uh, we know that he sat down with the disciples uh, the night that he was arrested and had 
what we call the Last Supper with them, at which he instituted the Lord's Supper. And so there he was eating and drinking with his disciples. And we know that when he was on the cross, according to John 19, chapter 19, verse 28, that he cried out, I thirst. He experienced hunger, he experienced thirst. Now, in saying from the cross, I thirst, he was also citing one of the Psalms, a messianic Psalm that said that the Messiah in his suffering would thirst. But the Lord Jesus experienced hunger, he experienced thirst. There's nothing sinful about either of those experiences. The Lord Jesus was, with respect to his human nature, also one who experienced ordinary human emotions, but never in a sinful or ungodly manner. Anybody here ever have a hard time controlling or managing your emotions? You get angry or maybe you get sad and you wish, boy, I I wish I could control my emotions. Well, the Lord Jesus was had human emotions and expressed them, but he was always in control and he never sinned. He never acted in an ungodly way with his emotions. And we can see this in many places throughout the scriptures. Uh, one way in which we see this is uh, in statements where Jesus cried or he wept. He experienced sadness. It's not sinful to experience sadness. To be sad over the right things. And so let me just give you two examples of this. In Luke chapter 19, as Christ is drawing near to Jerusalem and, and knowing that he is going to be rejected there and he's going to, be, uh, he's going to, he's going to suffer and he's going to uh, be rejected by the people of Jerusalem, we're told that he wept over the city. Luke 19 verse 41, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. And maybe one of the most famous Examples of this is when his friend, his dear friend Lazarus died. And we're told in John chapter 11, a lot of people know this verse because they're like, I memorized the verse. It's Jesus wept. John 11 verse 35. Well, that's a, it's kind of silly for people to say that, but it's actually a really important verse. It really stresses the true humanity of our Lord. And so um, it's not sinful to feel Grief and to feel sadness uh, when you lose a friend. Sometimes people have this wrong idea that as Christians that we just put on a plastic smiley Jesus face uh, and we, we, we never show any grief or sadness. Well, the Lord has given us, the, the true man has given us a model to follow. And it's, it's right and appropriate sometimes to express grief, but always in a godly manner. That's the way Christ did it. He also expressed righteous anger and disappointment. And we can see this in several ways. Uh, In John chapter 2, there's a description of Christ cleansing the temple. Apparently, Christ did this twice. He did this once early in his ministry. And that's recorded in John's gospel in John 2. And they did it later in his ministry when he entered Jerusalem the final time. That's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John is the only one who gives us this account of, of him cleansing the temple in his early ministry. And if you look at John chapter 2, verses 13 and following, it says this, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting, 
And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overthrew the tables. And then it says, and they said and and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And then in Luke 2, verse 17, John records and his disciples remembered that it was written the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, saying that he fulfilled what was written in Psalm 69 and verse 9. He was filled with zeal, righteous anger. It's wrong to become angry without a cause. Christ said if you do that, it's like committing murder in Matthew chapter 5. But there are times when it's proper to express just anger. And Christ also had times when when he uh, expressed disappointment. Um, one of the, I think, the most poignant examples of this is recorded in Luke chapter 22, when uh, Peter uh, three times denies that he knows Christ. Christ is on trial, and the Lord knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. He prophesied about this. But there's a really a poignant scene that's described in Luke chapter 22, when, when Peter denies Christ that third time, Luke 22, verse 60, and he says, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the, croc, the cock crew. And then it says in verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. How disappointed the Lord must have been in Peter. It tells us about Peter's emotions It says in verse 62 that Peter went out and wept bitterly. But I think we are to assume that that this was also an emotional moment for Christ himself. As one of his dearest friends uh, betrayed him. Have you ever felt like you've been betrayed by a dear friend, someone close to you? Well, Christ experienced that. But he experienced the disappointment of that without ever sinning. Also... um, Christ prayed. Sometimes I've heard Muslim apologists who will try to discount the deity of Christ by saying, uh, who is he praying to? But remember, he's a true man. And as a true man, as, as the one person who is God and man, he was in communion with the Father. And so it was right for him to pray to the Father. And on many occasions, he was involved in prayer. One of the most famous is in John 17. The entire chapter is a prayer that we sometimes call the high priestly prayer. And he begins by praying, first of all, for himself. As he prays in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may glorify thee. And then he prays for his disciples. Verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. And then he prays for us, for all those who will become his followers through the witness of the apostles. As he says in verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And so he he was praying for us. Now, again, he was fully a man. That meant that he had all the... The, 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 what we would consider ordinary human experiences, like, this is kind of a weird thing to think about, but Christ perspired. We're told in Luke 22, verse 44, as he was in the garden, as he, the night that he was betrayed, that in, in, the, in the agony of deep 
prayer, that there was sweat that fell from his body that, that was so thick that it was like, like drops of blood. doesn't say he sweated blood, but it was, his sweat was so, so thick that it was like drops of blood. Um, we're also told in the Gospels that he bled. Look at uh, Matthew 26 and verse 28. Of course, there are the descriptions of him going to the cross, of him being scourged, of, uh, of the crown of thorns being pressed upon his body. And of course, he would anticipate that by what he said as he instituted the Lord's Supper. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so Christ uh, bled and he, he spoke of, of how he would bleed and how he would suffer. Uh, we've talked before about Mark chapter 15, verse 34, sometimes called the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So Christ suffered mental anguish upon the cross. And then, of course, there's also the reality that Christ, as a true man, tasted death. Though he had never sinned, though he had never uh, transgressed against God's law, he was bearing our sin. And so he tasted a death for us. And each one of the Gospels gives us a description of his death upon the cross. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 27 and verse 50, we read, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost or the spirit. He yielded up his spirit. And so his, his spirit, his uh, rational his human spirit was separated from his uh, human body. And so he, he tasted death for us. We can also say, though, with respect to Christ fully being and truly being a man, is that he experienced the resurrection of his body. See, this is a reality for all human beings. One day we will all hear his voice and be raised as Christ himself taught in John 5, verses 28 and 29, the dead will hear his voice and be raised, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of damnation or condemnation. But Christ, uh, he's already experienced the resurrection. That's a, that's a part of the human experience we haven't experienced yet. But he's our pioneer. He's our forerunner. Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, the first fruits. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. The true humanity of Christ continues in his resurrection state. And so we have those interesting descriptions of him uh, as risen from the dead. And uh, he has a body. He has a body, in fact, which has upon it the wounds of his crucifixion. In John chapter 20, he appears to Thomas whom we sometimes call Doubting Thomas, but we really should call Believing Thomas. Thomas at first, first didn't believe the report that Christ had been raised from the dead. But in John 20 and verse 26, it says that Christ came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, John 20 verse 27, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless but believing. And then 
not doubting Thomas, but believing Thomas, said, My Lord and my God, my kurios and my theos, my Lord and my God. And then in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, Luke tells us how the risen Jesus appeared. Also, he tells us, as John did, how Christ showed uh, the wounds from his crucifixion and invited those who were there to handle him. Look at Luke 24, verse 39. He said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I have a resurrection body. And then, at verse 40 says, And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then what is more, he asked them, do you have something here that I can eat? Verse 42, it says, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb and he took it and did eat it before them. We're going to be eating in our resurrection bodies. It's going to be probably a great blessing of heaven. There'll be wonderful food. It'll be very pleasing. Think of all the best things you like to eat and imagine them 10 times better. The resurrection body... Apparently, uh, we, are, we are able to eat. Um, so, these are all marks of what we would call the true humanity of Christ. The Gospels present the true humanity of Christ. Let's go back for just a second. Go back to Philippians 2, verses 5 and following. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's that's Orthodox Christology. The one person who is in the form of God and in the form of a servant, made in the likeness of man. One person Two natures. And think back to the passage that was our focus last time. Hebrews 2 verse 17. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. See he had to become a true man. To be a true priest. And to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. And. Lastly, then, look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. The Apostle John says this. He's writing to a group of Christians and he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try or test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. And so there were docetic teachers early on, the days of the Apostle John, who were saying Jesus was not really a true man. And John said, if you deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, 
then you are an antichrist. You are an opposer of Christ. You're a false prophet. And so the, the biblical witness is Lord Jesus Christ, one person, two natures, true God, true man. And this is what we affirm. And we also acknowledge that he did this to bring benefit to us. There was an early Christian pastor named John of Damascus. He wrote this. He said, for the whole Christ assumed the whole me that he might grant salvation to the whole me. For what is unassumable is incurable. The whole Christ assumed the whole of me that he might save the whole of me. And so the Lord Jesus Christ became a man that he might save men. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for the biblical witness to the incarnation. And as we ponder it, uh, we do so with awe and with admiration. Help us uh, to know more of Christ. Help us to understand him rightly and help us to appreciate and admire what has been done for us through him. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.